0: Time Magazine's Vera Bergengruen says, if you want to understand Robert F. Kennedy's bid for president, a good place to start is by searching his campaign hashtag. It's RFK2024.
1: And it's weird. It truly really is the most confusing hashtag on the internet. And I know that's a tall claim. You go on it, and it's got these kind of far-right, you know, bros who are really big fans of RFK. You know, they, they think he would be the fittest presidential candidate ever. They find photos of him with Falcons because he's a falconer. It's got just people who are kind of nostalgic, you know, retirees who are talking about the time that they saw his uncle or his dad at a rally. So it's, it's got the strangest mix of people who seem to be liking different parts of him and confused by other parts of RFK Jr.
0: Confused is where a lot of outsiders start when they try to understand RFK Jr. You might begin by knowing the basics, that his uncle was President John F. Kennedy and his dad was the president's brother and right-hand man. Then you might figure out RFK is an environmental activist and lawyer, and yes, he does train falcons. But pretty quickly, you'll get to the stranger stuff, like how Bobby Kennedy, as many people call him, has become a vaccine skeptic one of the most influential out there, actually. Vera got an up-close glimpse at the candidate and his fan base a little more than a year ago.
1: You know, I've covered online movements uh, for a very long time. I covered a lot of the anti-vaccine movement during COVID. And I remember last year going to this rally here in Washington, D.C. at the Lincoln Memorial. It is an absolute honor to welcome Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to the stage. It was a defeat the mandates rally. The Proud Boys were there. It was all these very right wing people, and there was Robert, you know, Jr. Bobby Jr. on the steps, you know, comparing uh, vaccine mandates to the Holocaust. Comparing COVID restrictions to the
0: Holocaust, it wasn't even the wildest thing Kennedy said that day.
1: They're putting in five G to harvest our data and control our behavior. Digital currency that will allow them to punish us from a distance and cut off our food supply. And at that time, I remember talking to a lot of people in the crowd who were huge fans of his. They said they were going to continue following what he would do next. And at that time, it didn't feel like the right time to profile him because, you know, he he wasn't really that well known outside that circle. But once he decided to run for president, it seemed like a good time to not just look at, you know, him as a candidate, but really at why, why is this the moment for him? You know, why are so many people kind of jumping on board here?
0: Whether this is really the moment for Bobby Kennedy remains to be seen. He's running as a Democrat, That means he's got to find a way to defeat a sitting president. But in a recent survey, 20% of Dems seemed at least curious about him. Will Bobby Kennedy win the presidency in 2024? It's very, very unlikely.
1: So why is it important to talk about Bobby Kennedy anyway? For the last 15 years, he's basically been ignored and deplatformed from a lot of these channels, from a lot of political events, because of his conspiratorial views. But now he's bringing them into the mainstream by running for president. And the amount of people who are supporting this and and want to clearly talk about this, it's not a small number.
0: Today on the show, why RFK Jr. is not going away. He might be the most conspiratorial-minded presidential candidate out there. He's also a Democrat. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. I want to tell the story of Bobby Kennedy from the start, like how he got to where he is. He's the son of Robert F. Kennedy, and he seems to really carry his history with him.
1: Like you said, his house is sort of like a museum. It is. When you walk into his living room, you know, he's got all these black and white enlarged photographs of himself in the Oval Office with JFK, of, you know, his father's voter registration card, of magazine covers of his dad. And you can tell, you know, there's actual busts of JFK around his house. And it feels like they're always watching you. And it's a really, really, clearly it's the most defining part of his identity. And he spent his entire life in their shadow.
0: John F. Kennedy was assassinated when Bobby was nine. And Robert F. Kennedy, his father, was assassinated when he was 14. That's a lot to carry. How did those deaths
1: impact him? For him, he was always already, before his father's death, a bit of a rebel. And he, in his own telling, he says he he struggled to be a grown-up. And, you know, he was kicked out of several boarding schools. He was busted for marijuana possession. He experimented with all kinds of drugs. This kind of sounds like classic Kennedy behavior (laughs) in some ways. It does. And he, um, you know, his mother was overwhelmed by all accounts. He wrote a memoir about this and he didn't really seem to have much guidance. You know, he didn't know what to devote his life to. And he eventually ended up being busted for heroin possession and he had to do community service on probation. And he started volunteering for environmental groups. And that's where, according to him, he kind of decided, okay, like I found my passion. This is what I want to devote my life
0: to. How did he devote his life to it? Like, how did he jump in? At that point, did he have a law
1: degree? He had tried to become a lawyer, but he failed the bar twice. And then he, you know, he passed it. He became an environmental lawyer. And everyone who knows him describes him as a very obsessive person. If anyone's heard him on a podcast recently, you will you will know what I'm talking about. He's very intense. He's very obsessive. And he kind of channeled all of that energy into becoming an environmental lawyer, specifically to kind of cleaning up the Hudson River, to doing a lot with water pollution, joining all these groups that were devoted to this. And, you know, he did a lot. He was, you know, got all these environmental awards. He was on the cover of... New York Magazine for being, you know, the quote-unquote the Kennedy who matters for, you know, hmm. protecting New York City's water supply. And he was this up-and-coming guy with a political future.
0: The thrust of RFK Jr.'s work at this time was about uplifting some of the most marginalized people out there. Indigenous people, poor people, women and kids, people who were bearing the brunt of pollution. Anti-vaccine advocates
1: found him because they also felt marginalized. In his telling, when these women started coming up to him saying that their children were suffering from injuries because they had, you know, received childhood vaccines, uh, it, it kind of appealed to him. But even he says he, he says he dismissed it at first. Uh, there was one woman he says who came to his house in Cape Cod and refused to leave one summer until he had read this these boxes of data that she gave him. And he always emphasizes, you know, how he really studies the science and go, you know, really is a data guy. And again, in his telling, he thought it was compelling and he thought thought these parents were being ignored and that when he brought a lot of these questions in front of health agencies... They, you know, they were ignoring him and his experience with uh, with a lot of these regulatory agencies, uh, same with, you know, with river pollution, was that their data was often incomplete and that they were, you know, controlled by powerful interests and had no interest in actually, uh, you know, f- giving real transparent data and, and helping these people. And so he got drawn further and further into that. Robert Kennedy Jr.'s obsession with
0: vaccines and their entirely disproven connection to autism soon became his main career focus. He ended up taking over an advocacy organization, giving it the innocuous name Children's Health Defense. At the same time, he started sharing other conspiracies he was interested in, all of which have no basis in truth, like the idea that the 2004 election was somehow stolen from John Kerry by George W. Bush, and the idea that the CIA was responsible for the deaths of both his father and his uncle. His own sister and brother have openly said
1: some of his ideas are dangerous. And if you listen to him, you know, now as a presidential candidate, you know, he was talking about how chemicals and water may turn children transgender. He's talking about how 5G uh, is giving you know people cancer. And again, a lot of things that he always says with a lot of confidence, with a lot, you know, w- w- with the confidence of someone who says he has the studies to back it up. But it really has extended way beyond vaccines. And he actually prefers now to maybe not focus as much on vaccines. So that's a, it's interesting how he's leaned into all kinds of different conspiracies.
0: Well, it's interesting that he's doing that because I feel like his relationship to vaccines and what he said about vaccines has really supercharged the possibilities for him. So it's sort of funny that at this point now he doesn't want to talk about it as much because it seems to me like when COVID struck, it was a real turning point for him. He had been kind of dismissed by a lot of people as like fringy. But then once we were in the middle of the coronavirus and there was a possible vaccine for that, I feel like people started turning to his organization, Children's Health Defense, more and more.
1: They did. And, you know, it's understandable if you're someone who, you know, fell into thinking that the COVID vaccine was dangerous and it was developed too quickly, the government was pushing this on you, if you believed all these various conspiracies uh, you know, here he was someone who had said this since the 2000s. So it gave him credibility. It gave him credibility. And people, you know, you know. unfortunately, I spent too much time in a lot of these spaces. But if you were online in any of these massive right wing groups, in any of these massive um, anti-vaccine groups or, you know, kind of COVID era online groups, RFK Jr. was just shorthand for a visionary. You know, he really was a hero for people. And it was the Kennedy name also gave a veneer of respectability to a lot of these ideas.
0: It also expanded his budget, right? Like you wrote about how in 2020, his anti-vax organization, their budget went from 6.8 million to
1: 16 million, which is huge. Do we yeah. know where that money's coming from? It was a lot of supporters. It was a lot of um, it it did seem like a lot of it was just from normal people. I mean, so many people that I spoke with and followed when I was covering this during the pandemic were were people who felt like the, you know, the media was lying to them. You know, the the health agencies were lying to them. The government was trying to make them take something that was unsafe. And so for a lot of people, that's why he was such a trusted figure.
0: At one point, Bobby Kennedy was banned from Instagram because of his anti-vaccine beliefs. But recently his account was reinstated because he became a candidate for president. And it just raised this question for me, like is part of the reason he's running to basically spread
1: the gospel of what he thinks to be true. That is my sense. Uh, he's, he disagrees with that. He says he thinks he can win. But when you see him... You know, he is a man, you know, kind of unshackled, like this is someone who likes nothing more than to have a platform than to be able to talk to large audiences and just pontificate about all his different views. And he has not been able to do that for 15 years. And he says that he says, I've been censored for 18 years. And he he straight up told me this. he said, you know, running for president makes it more difficult for people to censor me. And so it does feel very much that uh, part of this is, you know, is a, is a way to get his views out there. And, you know, he was right if that was a bet he was making. I mean, uh, so far, it's really worked. He's been able to speak on pretty large platforms. And that's all he does all day is, you know, is, is go on three hour long podcasts to millions of people. He goes on rally to rally stages. He goes to small events. And suddenly, you know, I'm not saying everyone, because, again, it's it's important to remember this is a small group. But a lot of people with very big megaphones uh, in Silicon Valley and Hollywood, you know, all these people who maybe had kind of closeted contrarian views themselves are now, you know, everyone wants to hear what he has to say. And he, he really does seem to be in this element.
0: Silicon Valley might love what Bobby Kennedy's got to say, but traditional outlets, they will not give him the attention he wants. After the break, we talk about who will.
2: price and coverage match limited by state law Now
0: that Bobby Kennedy is solidly in the race for president running as a democrat it means that people like us reporters journalists have this choice about how to cover his candidacy or not cover his candidacy he has this theoretical 20% of democratic voters who could support him and he's made himself so available to people. Like he, he's gone on so many podcasts. <laughs> no podcast left behind. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he he was like I think this race will be won by podcasts, which, you know, as someone who hosts a podcast, like <laughs> uh, great. <laughs> but I wonder if we can talk about his appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast recently because I think it it's a really good microcosm of what could be about to happen and why it's problematic. Did you listen to the whole thing? I did not listen to the whole thing. <laughs> it was three hours long. <laughs> I understand.
1: Yeah. And I, as someone who's interviewed RFK Jr. for several hours, I feel like I I had heard a lot of it. But, you know, uh, these things get cut into little clips of the best parts. And they're just, I mean, you know, they're so widely distributed. Uh, you know, for someone who was banned from from Instagram, a lot of his stuff was banned from TikTok when he was spreading medical information. I opened my phone today And it was just endless clips of his uh, of him on the Joe Rogan show, especially um, promoting the same falsehoods that previously got him banned. I mean, his publisher told me today that his book uh, on Dr. Fauci, where he literally uh, accuses him of orchestrating a coup against Western democracy and has all kinds of, you know, uh, conspiracies and outlandish claims. That book is now num- the number 10 bestselling book on Amazon. It's just shot up. Uh, I think they've sold 100,000 copies uh, since he went on The Joe Rogan Show. So he's reaching people. He's reaching people. Just consider Elon Musk, someone who engages with a lot of these views online and has one of the world's largest platforms and megaphones. You know, he had RFK Jr. on his Twitter spaces, which is the same place that Ron DeSantis, who's, you know, one of the frontrunners for the Republican nomination, announced his candidacy. And this gives a kind of equivalency to these guys, right? I think the the issue here is that some of the world's loudest people are trumpeting it. And then it's it becomes a challenge not to cover it. And honestly, it's even better for them if it gets pulled down. This happened with an interview that RFK Jr. did with uh, Jordan Peterson, who's a also controversial conservative commentator, and some of his conspiracies about vaccines, they were pulled down by YouTube because it violated their policies. And YouTube pulling it down gave it way more visibility than them being there the, on there in the first place. You know, all these outlets covered the fact that YouTube had taken it down, and then you know uh, he put, tweeted about it with a link with with a, with a clip of this exchange, which when I checked this morning had been viewed you know almost five million times. And so the more alleged censorship kind of gets involved, I think also the more it, it, it kind of strengthens their point and And uh, it makes people even more curious to see what, you know, they're saying. Have you
0: spoken to a real RFK Jr. fan, someone who, like, like, tell me more about the people who are really motivated
1: by his candidacy and want to see him win? It's interesting. He really has a very strange coalition and, and he sees it as, as as um evidence that he is appealing all across you know to all sides of the political spectrum. You know, I was speaking yesterday to um, you know, someone who, a young entrepreneur, he's in his thirties. He has a kind of social media company. And he was telling me that, you know, he went to a Bitcoin conference. Uh, he met RFK Jr. at a Bitcoin conference. He loves what he has to say about cryptocurrency, about censorship. And he's kind of getting all of his friends, you know, riled up. He told me he'd never voted in a presidential election. Um, there's, I think one of the reasons, again, that RFK Jr. is relying on a small but very loud contingent is this group of supporters of, you know, I guess just kind of contrarian tech bros who just, you know, they're not really into Joe Biden. They're definitely not into Trump. But, you know, and and it's not even like they're that into RFK Jr., but he's giving them a platform to engage with politics. When you spoke to him, did Bobby Kennedy
0: indicate any actual policies he'd like to see materialize? Because it does seem talking to you that his campaign is a lot of vibes right now.
1: (laughs) Definitely a lot of vibes. Um, I did try to press him on that, um, especially when he speaks so much about, you know, returning trust to government and like these big ideas. And so I kind of tried to press him on it. And I asked him, you know, how would you do that? And he told me with uh, with pure confidence that would be very easy. Uh, He said he would basically just, you know, uh, remove the heads of all these different agencies in the U.S. government and replace them with people who he knows to be good people. Hmm. And a lot of these included his buddies from his previous activism work. Um, you know, he's a, he said, the, whether it's CPA, the FDA, the CDC, CIA, I kind of gave him a couple of these three letter agencies and he'd say, you know, I, I suit them. So I'm very familiar with them. I think there's some good people that work there and I'll just put these other people in. Um, but so much of this is about how he would root out what he considers corruption at the top. So it, it definitely seems like a bit of a vibes only approach. Yeah. I mean, you could
0: argue Trump was a pretty vibes first candidate and yeah. um, it worked out for him.
1: And he he cites Trump. Uh, you know, he says the way that Trump used Twitter in 2016, that's how I'm using podcasts. Uh, and he clearly like is is sees himself as, as kind of this insurgent candidate in a similar vein.
0: Yeah. I have one more question that I couldn't shake as I was reading your reporting. I wondered if we would have an RFK Jr. candidacy for president without COVID. Like, I wonder if without COVID, he wouldn't be in a position to be running the campaign he is right now.
1: I think that's definitely true. There is no RFK Jr. presidential run without the pandemic. He himself says that. He says that COVID convinced him to run and... COVID is what made his views palatable to a much larger view of the American population. And this isn't just on vaccines. It's this dark, distrustful view of government, a government that is trying to get you, that is poisoning you, that is lying to you. And it's difficult to kind of imagine this getting this much oxygen in 2018, in 2019, you know, he clearly didn't break out of that for 18 years. So it was really COVID that gave it, gave it this boost. And, you know, when you listen to what he talks about, you know, 40, 50% of what he talks about is the pandemic. So I, I, this definitely is why we have his current presidential run. Wow. I mean...
0: I just think about, like, we're going to be, we are going to be living with the impact of this pandemic for years in all these different ways that were impossible to anticipate three years ago.
1: It's definitely true. I mean, it's true of other candidates, too, right? I mean, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, is basically running as the candidate that, you know, um, saved, you know, that remade Florida during covid This is the election where we're really going to see the impact of that and how much people, how people felt about the way that this was handled by their political leaders and by people who say that they could have done better. Vera,
0: I'm super grateful for your time and your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Vera Bergengruen is an investigative correspondent for Time magazine. And that's the show. I say it all the time, but if you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to show us some love is to go join Slate Plus. It is our membership program. It is super easy to sign up. Go over to Slate.com/slash WhatnextPlus. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.